You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Oh, come on now. It's socially distanced fun. I'm Rowena <laughs> Miller. I'm Cass Morris. And I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca. And this is episode 28, Framing the Concept. Welcome back, listeners, for another episode of fun. Before we get started, does anyone have anything exciting on the horizon to share with the rest of us? Anything fun going on? <laughs> there is nothing fun going on. Nothing Robert. fun going on. No fun allowed. It is. It's kind of a weird we're... summer because I feel like most years we'd be sharing like where we're going to be this summer, traveling or being yeah. with friends, and it's not. It's not happening this year. We all the cons are canceled forever, forever. and I'm sad. It... I had one cancel for January, and that was just like Ooh. that broke me a little because I was like, I can't think about things still being like this another six and a half months from now. Like, ugh. I'm aware intellectually it might be, yeah, but like I'm not ready for it. <laughs> yeah, this, it was no good. Things had gone to plan. We would have just this past weekend recorded our live episodes yes, in Dallas. We would have. And oh. that did not happen at all. So hopefully that will get to happen sometime, somewhere, yes. in some frame of reality. <laughs> Who knows when that will be. You can see so many cons that are like, for 2021, they're like, we're hoping we can do a thing next year. But, like, some of them have just gone silent. And, it, yeah, because, yeah, all the things that we would be announcing right now of, like, you can see me here, they just aren't happening. My usual one of Armadillo Con did a sort of, like, soft, quiet, maybe if we don't say anything, people won't realize that we canceled, but we did. <laughs> And one of the other ones up in... I was going to try to make it to that one, too. It would have been fun. would have been delightful. But hopefully next year it'll happen and be yes. delightful. <laughs> the one, one of the other ones I go to regularly up in Dallas, they canceled. And they're like, but we've already got all of the guests that would have been for this year committed for next year. So that was at least, you know, at least that, that that's a good optimism there. And I'm for that. I'm for some good <laughs> optimism right now. Yes. This, that was what my local con did. RavenCon just rolled everyone over. They're like, if you want to come back, we're going to keep the same, like, schedule even. Because they'd gotten, like, they'd just given us our full, like, slate of panels and everything when everything then crashed. So they were like, we're just going to, we've got this schedule built. And if everyone comes back, we'll just keep this exact schedule. <laughs> so we don't have to do all this work over again. And I was like, works for me. That's one my agent keeps telling me I need to go to. So I, I should, I should. It's take... fun. I enjoy it. I should try that one sometime. When when we're allowed to go out into yeah. the world again and see people and not scream in terror when someone comes within five feet of you. But that day is not this day. <laughs> but it will come. This this too shall pass. And we will we will enter the world once more. But anyway. in the meantime 
<laughs> Since we can't enter the world, we can at least make it pretty. And that's what we're talking about this, this yes. time around. Is we're talking about visual arts within your world building and how you, how you create that and make that interesting. Yes, because if you, if you can't go to real museums, you can make up museums for your world. That's an option. Can't go to art class? Make your characters go to art class. There you go. <laughs> I, I feel like in books not written by me, I've not seen a lot of museums in fantasy novels. <laughs> like that's, that seems yeah. to be a, yeah. that's, that seems to be a cultural blind spot that happens a lot is you don't see, I can't think, I cannot think of a novel other than ones written by me where there was a museum in it that took place in a secondary world fantasy world secondary fantasy world i, know. I, have, I, have I can, I can think of garden. lots of thrillers but not i have a botanical garden that kind of serves mm. as a horticultural museum in some ways but but is not is not an art museum no on the whole other than libraries in fantasy you don't see too much i have built this place where I've collected the pretty things and here are all the pretty things where you can see them be that art or be that horticultural garden or an arboretum <laughs> or something like that where you don't see too many of those sort of like collections or, or even like menageries or zoos like I can't think of too many of those even oh, I've, showing I've up got one fantasy. of those too I've got a menagerie and a water I garden. wonder if it's because I just like making pretty places for my characters to go hang out in, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if it's because we tend to perceive those locations as somewhat more modern. You know, they, they've, we perceive them as developing later in culture, and so much fantasy is still set, you know, ye old medieval land, um, which makes it a, a great place to do what we do and interrogate is that an accurate assumption to make? Is there any reason that you can't have these things? Right. Is there any reason you can't be writing a more modern fantasy world? As some people, you know, it, I think there's a lot of unexplored territory that can be dove into in that way. Yeah, and I think too, like that the library is so ubiquitous in in fantasy novels. I feel partially because it's often a plot point, right? You have to figure something out <laughs> so you. You go to the library or the castle archive or the, you know, collection of books that the religious sect has. But, you know, it could be a plot point that you have something in a museum or an art collection or a botanic garden or, or whatever. And that could be, you know, almost a more fun way to play with those plot points if you, if you can think of a fun way of doing that. Fantasy Da Vinci Coast. Yes. <laughs> To go find the clues in the paintings yeah. to unlock mystic portal. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that could be. I don't know. I could that. Yeah, that 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 sounds like it'd be cool and less annoying because it's you know you're doing your made up fantasy bullshit and not you know making huge crazy ideas with history that have nothing to do with reality. <laughs> <laughs> not that I'm calling out the Da Vinci Code specifically, but I am. <laughs> But that just happened. <laughs> that was what just happened. <laughs> no, I think it's interesting, though, because, I mean, visual art is such a cultural touchstone, right? Like, when we study mm -hmm. different cultures, especially past cultures, I mean, art is, you open a textbook and that's what you get, is images of paintings and 
mosaics and friezes and sculptures and that's kind of you know a gateway into cultural studies um and so it's sort of interesting that we often do skim over it in fantasy because when you're studying history or religion or classics or anything like that you you get a lot of visual art thrown at you i wonder if again it's one of those things in the challenge of translating that to the page like when we were talking briefly about architecture in the last episode it's really hard to like talk about like the ancient arts of something without making it really plain what you're what you're filing the serial numbers off of and because all of the language you might use to describe what it looks like will come i think from a lot of those ancient sources that you can tell exactly which ancient sources you are cribbing directly off of and that at least makes it a challenge not impossible but if you're showing that like this is where not only is this you know this country that my world set in really my ancient medieval europe but here is where my ancient egypt is here's where my ancient rome is and things like that and you want to limit to how much you're just scrubbing serial numbers off of earth history you want to make it at least semi not obvious and i think that's at least part of the challenge in describing like your art history or those ancient culture touchstones that you're talking about i think it's interesting too though because often we you know dive into um when you're creating a past for your world we often think well what's the ancient part right like where does what what are the roots what are your classics what is your ancient egypt or, or ancient rome or whatever um, but art makes up so much of the more recent history of a world that if you think about um, what developments have gone through a culture more, you know, in the past 100 years, 200 years, art plays a big part in that too, um, just in terms of not just the, the social and political and economic history, though art plays into that too and is, re you know, reflects that. But just like the aesthetic history, what did people, what were people decorating their houses with? How were they decorating public spaces? What was in vogue? And those things are part of kind of big cultural history um, that you can play with um, to some degree in world building. And I think you can, you can take that down to like its most basic roots of like, you know, most of the buildings are painted blue and green because those are the minerals nearby that we mix into paints to make those paints and it can be just that simple and then that those sorts of aesthetics roll into everything else like these are just happen to be the things that we have as easy dyes in this part of the world so that's why all of our clothes are this color and this is what we can use to make you know to make buttons so that's what our buttons are made of and stuff like that and i think you can take all those things and and play with them a lot to find the aesthetic that you want to go for in your world building but again there there's always the challenge in how do you express that in a way that's convey necessarily doesn't have to convey those those under the iceberg elements to the reader but conveys that aesthetic to the reader in a way that you're not just spelling it out in a tell not show sort of way. I think the use of color can play a big role because that is something you don't have to use specialized language to, to talk about. You don't have to say, you know, Rococo or whatever, but you can say 
you know, the room was decorated in pinks and golds. And you can then map that onto your different cultures or your different, you know, families or classes or whatever you want. I think that's why, like, you know, whether it's the houses in Game of Thrones, you know, they've all got their banner colors and things like that, but you can sort of extrapolate that and attach it to other things. Maybe this, you know, religious institution uses these colors and, and this um, magical community uses these other colors. That's sort of a base level artistry that it can be easy to communicate for a reader and, and I think also easy for readers to understand. I think our minds tend to like sort of color coding in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's true. Especially like if you can associate, say, just like a pair of colors with each group, because also we love our groups. We love to split things into groups <laughs> so darn much. And if you can associate with each group a pair of colors, whether you're, you know, House Stark and House Lannister or, you know, Slytherins and Gryffindors and what have you, if you can associate those with a pair of colors and then make that into an aesthetic, then boom, you've got you've got a lot of visual design right there. Now, how that necessarily transforms into how you're showing art and how art works in your world, that's that's a next level thing. If you're even necessarily thinking about how art works in your world. And maybe that's like the first like big step we need to encourage our listeners to do in their reading, in their writing and world building is to think about what the art just might be and how it looks. So here's a question I feel like this this is this is a rabbit hole question and we won't answer it I'm sure <laughs> but I think one question to think about is what is the difference between art and craft hmm. not only in a philosophical sense for us but within your world what's the difference between art and craft I, say, I, I feel like I had this conversation with my family recently because we were talking about how much people have devalued artists as a whole in this time of pandemic but when you think about it, that, that line between art and craft is a thin and blurry one because almost everything around you has been designed in some way by someone with artistry on some level. You know, all the furniture around us, all of our textiles, everything like that has some degree of art in it, even if we don't always think about it as an artist versus just someone who's working and doing a job. Right. I mean, I think that we often, you know, and backing up a little bit, I, th I think it's often been um, gendered too, that someone doing, um, you know, kind of household work, like sewing or um, quilting or something like that, that that could delve into the the artistic isn't necessarily that's not necessarily considered artwork. Um, and I think we've carried that and classist as well, because anything, you know, you're just working with your hands to make woodwork or, you know, some masonry that's not purely decorative or something like that. Um, and we've carried that on because it's it's interesting, especially like during pandemic, how many people are taking up a craft for the first time or are picking something back up that they hadn't done before. And when you think about something like, you know, embroidery or needlepoint um, or plenty of other crafts that people are picking up, I mean, it, it certainly crosses a line. They wouldn't necessarily call themselves artists, but you're putting an element of creativity into something um, and expression into something that we would associate with art. You've gone beyond the strictly functional right. use of an object and have made it 
decorative in some way, even if it is still also functional. Yeah, I think, I mean, the where craft ends and art begins or vice versa is very fuzzy line, but it's definitely a spectrum of functionality to aesthetic. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of gray area in the middle between those two uh, where people are doing both where yeah like these shoes are functional shoes but they're also pretty shoes and we have to do we have to make them both <laughs> and the making them pretty is the art part but making them that they still work as shoes is the craft part i think also one thing we tend to value in our culture is originality with art that people might argue that for example following a cross-stitch pattern is not really art because you're just following a pattern someone else originated that mm -hmm. someone made it you're just crafting something um and that's i mean i kind of stopped to think about it i'm like that's that's kind of a pretty specific thing that we place that value of originality on art that if an artist just copies directly a painting that someone had done we might recognize the talent and we might say you know yes your brush strokes are beautiful and your use of of fine detailing is excellent but but you, that's you know you didn't really make art you just copied something that someone else did um and that that's something you wouldn't necessarily have to carry over into a fantasy world originality doesn't have to be some cornerstone of artistic expression you know i remember seeing a thing a while ago it was a documentary about some great art forger who made tons of forgeries that fooled everyone and there is the big question of like you know is this person a great artist i don't know but they certainly like they were able to make forgeries that fooled experts so clearly they had incredible skill but did that initially make them a great artist or not because if they could paint a painting that an expert would mistake for a da vinci were they not then as good as da vinci like that's the question and who knows you know what's the answer to that question is certainly up in the air and i think the flip side of the question of like is a copy art is like very few of us can afford to have a da vinci hanging in our houses but we can have a print of a da vinci you know we can have prints and copies of our favorite paintings framed and put up in our own houses for you know, our own personal benefit to, to beautify our surroundings. And it's not the original art, but I would still say, oh yes, that is artwork hanging on my wall, even if it's not something that, you know, the master did with his own hands. And then again, there's also then the question of like, how much work did quote unquote the master actually do? And how much was his, you know, army of interns that were doing, <laughs> doing a lot of the groundwork for everything? I feel like too, and this is something that I, I think has come up um, perennially comes up in publishing is the concept of associating art with money and what are you paying for it? Because yeah. I mean, within the last week, we've had yet another conversation about pirating books and why that yes, listeners does hurt the author. We'd really appreciate if you don't pirate our books um, because that, that does reduce sales. It, it makes our numbers look bad etc etc our art that we do if we want to call what we do art is still part of a business and i think that very frequently art is part of of a business and when you think about the great master and what was the great master you know doing very possibly he was also getting paid and so it's kind of 
interesting to situate this this philosophical question of originality and creativity and skill within this other framework of and how is it how is it like monetarily valued by a society how does it become a profession how is it something that someone um you know is making a living doing as well right because part of it is whoever is doing the art and has you know mastered their craft to the level where they're worth getting paid for how do they support themselves and they have to get somebody with money to give them money to do art and so that sometimes means that a lot of the art being done is stuff that's specifically asked for by the people with money be that you know something about their own history or the people or commissioning portraits of themselves or their families or as so much visual art is you know finding some excuse to get someone they wanted to get naked naked and <laughs> That, that is so much of the history of art. I want an excuse for this person to take their clothing off. And so let's have a painting done. Hopefully it will persuade them <laughs> to take their clothing off in the same room as me. <laughs> Even if I have to persuade them of that from several hundred miles away. Yes. <laughs> but I think what, that some, what some of that might speak to in a world building sense is, you know, how much excess is there within a culture? Because if somebody has the money to be paying for art, that implies that the artist is not needed for mere substance tasks. You know, they, they are not so desperately in need of farmers that that person's labor can't be spared. And it also says that the person doing the paying has money that doesn't have to be put towards other purposes. Which is not to say you don't find art in, you know, subsistence level areas, but it is on a different scale. So I think that's the thing to think about in your world building. You don't tend to have subsistence farmers with oil paintings in in their house in their, you know, one-room houses. It's art art varies based on the scale of what is happening. Although we've now in the modern world sort of come, you know, full circle where we have so much ridiculous wealth that we can duct tape a banana to a wall and claim that that's that that's art. We we've gone so far around the bend that that's a thing that happens. Well, that does raise the question is, what is art? And art is what whoever is perceived as an authority declares as being art, even if it can seem ridiculous. It's still a matter of the person who is perceived as, as an authority making that declaration, saying that this banana duct taped to the wall is worth a lot of money because of who duct taped it to the wall or what have you. And that, that alone says something about the culture you're building if something absurdist can become celebrated like that there's a um really funny play called art it's it's a french play so i think it's translated in english too um but the whole play centers around these three friends and one of the friends brings home a very expensive painting by a very famous artist and the painting is just a white canvas painted white and his friends are just like that's not art that's not art that's a white canvas painted white and the whole play is like kind of deconstructing what is art and what does art mean and you know the friend who bought it's like well, I, I liked it and I liked that it was by this artist and and does that count for anything and so it's it's a it's a fun it's a fun play if you want to deconstruct that that whole question but yes you know what 
what what can constitute art a white canvas painted white a banana painted to the wall someone sitting by themselves in a room as performance art you know it's mm. there's there's all kinds of things that we can invent as art and who gets to declare what has that value as art and what doesn't it could be sort of fun if you built like a really art centric culture and had you know a a grand vizier of art whose job it was like for some religious or magical reason and and that was how like power was attained was by impressing this grand vizier of art with whatever you'd done and like i could see like a whole competition thing being built around <laughs> that and then there there could be a whole element of like censorship or or blacklisting or even you know shunning because like you did bad art and therefore therefore you pissed off the vizier and therefore you're run out of town on a rail (laughs) (laughs) well i think we so often think of like competitions as as physical things you know you think about like the hunger games where you get more food if you're willing to potentially be picked to to enter this physical combat with other children but like what if there was a world where Disputes were decided by art, by having an art throwdown, <laughs> rather than dance off, rather than fists or rapiers. <laughs> like, I mean, what's the duel? Pick your weapon: pastels or watercolors. <laughs> to an extent that I mean, that is what like a rap battle is. Is we're gonna. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna fight, but we're gonna fight with our rhymes. And you can. That's very you can true. Have, like, yeah. Art rebellions too, right? Like, if you have an institution of some kind that is deciding what is art, then that creates this tension to push back on saying like, oh, but, but no, but hold on. And I mean, that's, that's what Impressionism was, right? That you had the Academy in France that said, this is what good art is. And it was super hyper-realistic, often like allegorical or whatever paintings. And then you had these guys say, no, screw that. This is art. And Manet draws, you know, paints naked ladies having lunch with dudes on the grass and calls it art and paints prostitutes. And that's like, that's not art. You can't do that. Oh, but I can. See, it's still art. <laughs> and then you get, you know, See, all the I did it. <laughs> all the screwing around that doesn't have to look exactly like a haystack in a field for me to make you think about a haystack in a field through the shading and the coloring. And oh, look what I did. So, I mean, you can kind of have fun with that, too. Like, what, what reactions do people create out of art? And what are the re- reactions do they have to art that kind of create fun little tensions? I think that's a really cool way to look at it in the sense of, like, in, if you're doing your world building to, like, dive into the history of what the art movements were and, like, what came out of what eras and... Like, sure, you've built your history with your dynasties and your kings and who fought which wars when, but but where's the art? Where's where where is your, you know, revisionist movement? Where is your where's your guys in their green period? Where, you know, that's that's your homework for this week, dear listeners. Is to is insert that into your world. We don't really assign homework on this podcast. I don't know why I said that maybe we should start maybe that should be our new thing we, 
You know, I bet we could get at least some of the people in the Discord chat to go along with it. <laughs> oh, yeah. This could be fun. Well, and, you know, it's fun, too, because so often art is a reaction to bigger political and social things that are happening. Like, you look at all of the, like, surrealist and Dadaist stuff that's kind of coming out of the post-World War One era, where it's like, hey, nothing makes sense, so screw it. I'm going to string a bunch of random words together. I'm going to call it a poem. I'm going to paint a melting watch because that makes sense to me screw it screw it all and you know you can have kind of fun with that too in terms of what are the big big political happenings in your world and say well how are people reacting to that in a creative way you know what means do they have already in the world maybe there's you know you've established there's painting or sculpture or whatever. And so how are people responding to the big stuff that you as a writer are making happen in your world in a creative way? And in that sort of reactive political way, you can show that a lot just with graffiti in your world of how, how people will <laughs> cast is making all sorts of jumpy excited faces <laughs> because graffiti is not new graffiti is not graffiti new is not new at all. <laughs> it's so old it's great um so we have so much information from the things romans wrote on walls um and if if you ever watched hbo's rome it's one of the things that they got really right in that context is that there was graffiti everywhere and some of it was political some of it was you know fuck my opponent he's a jerk he fucks donkeys and some of it was, you know, get your bread here. We we like this. And and some of it was just dongs everywhere. <laughs> just so many penises all over the walls. Um, but it was often a, a method of social expression. It, it was a way for anybody who could pick up some paint to have their say, to have a public expression of what was going on and their frustrations and their threats, perhaps, or... Um, it was Twitter. Yeah, it sort of was. It like there's a real argument you can make for graffiti as social media throughout the ages. That's a definite thing. <laughs> but that speaks to something of like that speaks to a world where life is very public. You know, if if writing or painting on public walls, formally or informally, if it's you know formal murals or informal graffiti, but if that is the venue for art and expression that speaks to a world where people move around a lot within their environment, where they're not insulated in their houses. You know, we don't find things like that in modern suburbia that much because people tend to be sort of insulated in their own little lots there. But you find it in areas where the populace lives in external and public life more. And that line between, say, a formal mural and informal graffiti can be really fuzzy where you know the people who are doing graffiti can be truly gifted artists who do something mm -hmm. beautiful and gorgeous that then lasts forever and you will then you can reach the point where certain elements of graffiti can then become enshrined because like the artist's tree behind them jumped out and spoke to people or then became became part of the tradition of wherever they are uh, here in Austin, there is a wall that somebody just do the graffiti of this, you know, silly looking frog saying, hi, how are you? But like that was done in the 70s, but it became like the sort of cultural touchstone that people were like, no, that 
that's part of Austin. And so when that building was sold and was going to get torn down, people were like, no, tear down the rest of the building, but we have to save that wall because like we have that now on t-shirts and we can't like, we cannot lose this, <laughs> this silly, this silly painting because this is part of who we are. Well, and like even advertisements, like I think about um, like the ubiquitous mail pouch tobacco painted on the side of people's barns and that became like a symbol of rural you know backroads america that you have people renting out their barns to have stuff painted on them and then you know when it lasts 20 30 50 years it suddenly kind of becomes this quaint thing that people look for and see even if like the thing it's advertising like that that company went out of business 50 years ago yeah. but <laughs> but the painting is still there and the essence lives on and i think that's one of the more fascinating things about art is when art starts out as something commercial or has some sort of movement behind it and then those reasons fall to the wayside but the art itself remains and i think you can i think you can have a fun time playing with some of those i mean again this is one of those things you definitely want to be very show don't tell in your actual writing process but if you can have say things that meant something three generations back that are just still around and don't necessarily need explanation because the people who live it day to day don't have an explanation it's just always been there and then get mad when other people say we should tear this down because this actually represents a terrible portion of our history <laughs> just as an example i don't know <laughs> just just as a hypothesis um but even i mean like even that is a really great example of of art and and the political conversation i i am from originally richmond virginia where they've got all those just great great statues to people who really sucked but you know it's monument avenue it's the whole thing you've seen the news um listeners i'm sure you've seen and right now they're getting the hell graffitied out of them all the time it's fantastic and someone took a picture of two young black ballerinas posing on the robert e lee statue that's all graffitied and like that picture is a work of art in and of itself it's just wonderfully composed it's a great statement and then you also have the um the statue the rumors of war by kende wiley that was originally displayed in new york and then was brought down to richmond for um placement at the virginia museum of fine arts and it's a block away from all of these confederate statues and it is a gorgeous work of art. And it is done, you know, in the same style as those statues. It's a bronze cast of a guy on a horse, but this one's got dreads and is wearing Nikes. And it's it's such a wonderful commentary on the, the ugly historical legacy <laughs> that we've got there. Um, and it's a fantastic work of art. I'm, I was so happy and pleased when it came to Richmond. But things like that, like what is, what is your art in communication with? How is it in communication with your social dynamics and your politics and with other works of art, I think can be a powerful touch point as well. Even if that's just something you sort of slide in, in the description as your character is, you know, walking down their street, you know, what are the visual things they see that you can slip in as part of the world building? 
but because so much of art is public and even if it's not a public square monument kind of thing you still have the public element of what art are people choosing to put in public buildings or in school rooms right like you think about what kind of art gets hung up in most classrooms or in you know your version of the post office or the civic building or whatever do you have do you have artwork that crops up everywhere like i think of that like ubiquitous portrait of george washington that was like in every like school classroom in like the 1950s to the 1990s um but yeah i mean there's there's an element of public expression um to art so art is public but art is also private right the extent to which yes. people are choosing what art to decorate their own homes with or to connect with on a private level. I mean, art can be a very personal thing as well. Even if it's the kind of art that a lot of money is paid for, it's still it's like some people with ridiculous amounts of money will buy a piece of art just so they can keep it to themselves and enjoy it themselves or in whatever way they might choose to enjoy it that sounded worse even worse <laughs> than i meant it it was it, i mean it's already pretty bad but i made it sound even weirder <laughs> no you're right though i mean like I, i've read things about like the acquisition of art by you know mega billionaires and the amount of money they'll spend on it. And I just got to say, there is nothing in the world I can imagine liking to look at that much. <laughs> and at that point, it's not even necessarily about the art, but about the status symbol of being able to possess the art. Probably. I don't know. Maybe they really, really like their oil paintings. So I don't know. Yeah, it, it can be more just about that cachet of like, look what I've got on my wall. I've got the, the manets you didn't even know existed. <laughs> <laughs> but even that, like that's, that's still a flex. And even though it's not right. public, you're still like showing off for somebody and it might be a select audience, but it's still meant to impress someone. And I think that's the case with a lot of like, if we think about the history of portraiture and, and rich people paying to have themselves painted either for their own benefit or for someone else's, not everyone was going to see those. They weren't hung up on, you know, public walls, but they might be in, great houses or in palaces or in, you know, whatever, the, the great hall or something where the high muckety-mucks would see it and be impressed by it. And um, Queen Elizabeth sent such pointed political messages through her portraiture. Um, my favorite one of hers was after the Spanish Armada when she's like standing on a map and has her hand just like resting on a globe and it's very <laughs> pointed, like... It's like, oh, look, you thought you were going to beat England up and you totally didn't. And I'm going to have a portrait made about it. Elizabeth also found a picture she liked of herself in like 1564 and required every portrait artist to use the same face from then until her death so that she wouldn't look like she was aging, which is a power move I highly approve of. <laughs> Basically early modern Photoshop. <laughs> like when people keep their profile picture on facebook or twitter like the same picture for like you know from like 10 20 years a decade ago. yeah <laughs> <laughs> well then i think about portraiture you know and anytime you're framing something and hanging it on the wall and you've commissioned it and you've 
clearly chosen a very particular way to have yourself painted, typically. There's a public performance to that. Um, but then through, throughout history, um, but really particularly in the 18th and 19th century, you had this, this move to having miniature portraits as well. And then that ended up having a much more mm. private audience, you know, because you have a small portrait painted and then your husband or wife or parent or whoever is carrying this. And there was um, kind of a, a crazy little uh, moment in the late 18th century where people would have a portrait painted of just their eye for someone that they were not married to, but they had a relationship with. So you couldn't say, oh, this is, you know, this is so-and-so. I recognize their portrait. You must be sleeping with them. But it was at this little memento of just an eye. Um that is a a hilarious way to avoid getting caught, and b not the worst thing you could choose to have a mini portrait made out no, of. No, uh, you know it's not a dick pic. So. <laughs> but it does and seem like it would be solicited because like it would take a lot of effort to go through <laughs> painting somebody's eyes. So, yeah. but it does seem like the old world version of like I can't show my face. <laughs> <You do. laughs> Oh my gosh. Which again goes, you know, a good portion of art is used for the pornographic in one way or another, whether the yes. person appreciating it is just the artist or that they have, you know, or they have an audience that they're trying to please with that. And the pornographic and the erotic is certainly an element that you need to consider in your world building, even if your consideration is, I don't want to deal with this and step away. <laughs> you should at least make that as an active choice rather than as a passive choice. <laughs> there is, I, I think but I, I think... mentioned before the fantastic, um, the Kinsey Museum in at, at Indiana University <laughs> in Bloomington. Um, and when I was there last, one of their exhibits was, um, had, these, these tiny, again, they were like miniature portraits, but they were kind of like, almost like in a um, snuff box kind of format. But the whole point was that mm. you open it and there's this naughty scene inside and they're like from like the mid 18th century. So it's really funny because people, I mean, this is, you know, well wrought artwork, but for the purpose of having a smutty little scene in your pocket that you can pull out and be like, hey, yeah, look at that. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's true. There's there's a whole room in the Uffizi Gallery in, in Italy of smutty Roman artwork. And I think you have to be like a certain age to be allowed into this room, I seem to recall. They let us in when we were 16 when I went there as, as a youth. But like, maybe it was because our teacher vouched for us. I don't know. But you walk in and there's sort of stuff on the walls. And then right in the middle of the room, there is a lovingly sculpted rendition of a satyr fucking a goat and like it's almost a tender love scene like the, the goat's kind of like turning back to look at the satyr and you're like you know this is weird but <laughs> it's telling a story it's a it's a whole thing yeah it's it's just right there in the middle of the room and the whole room is just is things like that it's like i said dongs everywhere but now if i recall correctly and you're far more the rome expert than i am cast but that rome scrubbed out a lot of their smuttier art and from most of their cities and then when we've been excavating pompeii 
we've been discovering oh things were a lot smuttier than we thought because they couldn't hide this stuff because the city was destroyed but a lot of the other yes <laughs> um it's I, I, I think it's it's a combination of yeah like once you get christian influences all of a sudden they get more modest um and some of it just exposure over time a lot of stuff just you know in rome itself didn't survive or got washed out bleached out one of my favorite things about rome is that it was a garishly colorful city in its day everything was painted i mean if it stood still long enough someone was going to slap a bright cerulean or bright red paint on it but now we think of it as being very white and that's like why modern imitations of classical things all look very you know white and pristine and marbly because we didn't know until more recently that they were garishly colored but yeah so much of what we know about roman art we have found in these places that were buried that were not destroyed either intentionally or through the vagaries of time and yeah a lot of them there's there's a famous brothel in pompeii that has just magnificent <laughs> artwork on the walls and it's it's a matter of debate like was this the lady's specialties or was it like a menu you could choose from like <laughs> ah yes i'll have the number three there thank you um we're not sure what the exact purpose of the, or was it just inspirational? You know, was it just to set the mood? We're not sure what the exact purpose of this artwork was, but we've found a bunch of it. And it's not all smutty. A lot of the stuff, I mean, there are some really gorgeous interior rooms that there was a vogue for a time of painting like a garden in a room. And you find these like teeny tiny little birds that have like a lot of personality to them, just sort of tucked in a corner of a room somewhere. And it's, it's really quite charming, but I think it's the thing to think about with art too is like so much of history how much of the story do we get from what survives yeah you know and like are your characters aware of the legacy that's been handed to them by the art they're looking at something you said earlier marshall made me think of the episode of downton abbey where they've like let the townsfolk into the hall and they're asking questions about all the artwork on the walls and the people who live there right have yeah. no idea <laughs> Like, I Who think that was Aunt, it. So like that was Aunt Georgia, was maybe the, I don't know. <laughs> was that the third Earl or the fourth? <laughs> I don't know. So yeah, it's also something to think about. Like, how much do your people know about the art that is around them, and do they know what they think they know? <laughs> is it just the background noise of their life, or does it have meaning? And who gets to define that meaning? Well, and then something that if you're working within a second world fantasy that you can also play with is how do magic and art intersect? Ooh, yeah. And one that I actually think of is um, Mary Robinette Cowell's Glamorist um, series books, because in, in those, magic is um, a typically feminine pursuit, and it's basically used to create art. Um, and to create kind of illusion um, that makes spaces more aesthetically pleasing or makes experiences more aesthetically pleasing. Um, so it was a really interesting artistic way to think about how would people use magic. Yeah, I love, I loved that. I just read the first one of those recently and just adored how the magic and the art sort of wove together because you could really get the sense. And it wasn't just physical art, it was music as well, I think. And, and like those different endeavors but you could really get a sense of how they were intertwined and there's just there's so much possibility when you start adding magic into it like is this is sigil painting you know a thing is a way of carving something going to make it magical or endowed with power 
could you could, <laughs> could you give someone the power to like paint portals on the wall straight up like Wiley Coyote, <laughs> but in an artistic way, you know, like I have this magic power. If I paint on the wall in a certain way, I can step through to another place in the universe. I don't know. Like, yeah, once you start adding magic in, you can do all kinds of weird things with art. And then if you have magic that is art powered, does the power of your magic, is it defined by how skillful your art is? Like, mm. like does painting portals in the wall, can you make really cool ones if you have the artistic skill to paint a really neat looking portal? Whereas the guy who just like takes a piece of chalk and draws a circle, like, no, that's, that's not going to get you very far. <laughs> That's going to get you like a block tops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then that, that kind of leads into the question then of, of art and education and training and skill and all those things. And especially if you're working with magic too, you know, do you have some kind of formal program of training artists um, or training art ma magicians? Or is it just something that you are expected to learn on your own or is there like an apprenticeship kind of thing so you can kind of play with that too and getting back to that question of is there an institution or an authority that's going to play into that quite a bit too because if there's some sort of authority of what constitutes art or what you know creates good quote-unquote art you know they're going to be controlling education to some degree as well is there an authority that, you know, declares who gets to be an artist? Is there an authority that declares what gets to be painted or not? Um, like, does, say, the church in your world be like, no, this is an ungodly thing that you have done and we must burn it? Or you're not going to be allowed to paint something that's not a depiction of, you know, one of the stories in in our Bible or whatever it is you've got going on. And that's... Where, or, or you're you know, absolutely that's where the not line permitted to do any of those things. <laughs> or is it municipal? You know, you, you're you not licensed to paint wall portals. So <laughs> yes. we're going to fine you because you have Where's not gone through the proper step you need a to get to paint your wall portals. Though I like the idea, especially if art and magic intertwine, that there is some sort of bureaucratic body that's overseeing both those schools of like who gets to do what and and you're going to get shut down if you're if you're doing illegal art and then you can have a whole thing where like illegal street art is a thing and you have like people who slip off in the middle of the night to like put beautiful murals on the wall to express their political discontent with these bureaucracies i love it somebody write that book write that fantasy novel <laughs> i want i want a fantasy secondary world fantasy equivalent of the get down somebody somebody out there write that book because it would be awesome with with graffiti art and people in you know in marginalized parts of the city and expressing themselves with their art and fighting back against against the man give me that give me that book somebody who's out there who's listening to that <laughs> who's gonna write that book renegade this... magical artist yes i love it, I love it. <laughs> that's like 95 percent of the point of this podcast is just to think of crazy ideas for books that I don't have time or skill to write that somebody else ought to. And we just, just seed them so that someone else can pick them up. <laughs> yes. Inception like of that. cool good. book ideas. That's that's what I'm doing here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
All right, so we're kind of coming to the end of our time, <laughs> and I'm realizing that something that we have not done in a while is any um, on-air building of our world that we've been playing with. No, I feel like this totally throws me in the so deep end. I was realizing we, we need to give Cass her own corner of the world, and we kind of hadn't done that up till now. So maybe next episode we'll have to give Cass, like, her Something. corner to build her playground. But maybe we can all just throw in a little bit of of some kind of artwork that our world can share, because our world is a sharing world, that it, there's trade, there's there's cultural sharing there's all that kind of stuff so i wonder if we can work up some form of artwork that that the world has so since so much of what we've made the magic system work like is that it comes like from the earth itself and comes from the land and comes from the minerals around them i think like a thing where you actually like make like a tiny sculpture or a pendant out of out of like the very stone or gemstones from your area that have just the most magically infused and using those in an artistic like creating like just a little mini sculpture that you give as gifts to, as, that are also here's some magic for you here's here's a little thing that you can do that that will help you with your life but it's also pretty <laughs> I like that. That's what I got. <laughs> I was kind of thinking about because we're at a technological level that we have printing presses and things like that, and we're sharing so much that I could see this world having an active trade in art prints. Um, mm. And then that is how a lot of people are encountering like the images and the aesthetics of places they've never been to. So that you can buy, you know, if you live in, in my little archipelago, you can buy art prints or um, kind of like sketches of the city of, of Marshall's area. And that this is kind of this this faddish trade of people um, collecting or looking at or enjoying art prints from different parts of the world. I think that's cool. I like that. And I feel like you would have like a small cadre of people whose job it was to like go find the prettiest things to make prints of like this is this is your whole job is just to travel this world and find the most beautiful things that we can trade around everywhere else that's pretty cool and what do you have Cass? or, or are you not quite ready to, to jump head first into the water just yet <laughs> oh gosh i don't know i need to like go back and listen to all the episodes of like <laughs> remember what all the various bits are up to now we keep we keep I've, I've listened to them make a wiki and we haven't made a wiki and well if i get <laughs> like Remember if i, I really want to avoid working on my own projects soon i may start doing that um i'm i'm going to i'm going to give myself the seed of an idea that i'm going to give myself permission to grow later and it's going to be about magical paints because of like what marshall was saying with like so much magic coming from the ground and the minerals. I feel like if you like ground that up and did something with it, it would give you a paint you could do something magical with. I don't know if I want that to be in like portraiture or wall portals or <laughs> like body paint even maybe. I don't know. But I'm going to I'm going to think about magical pigment. I like that. I like that. That's magical what I'm going to think about. 
That's very cool. I'm for it. I love it. I'm very for it. Rad. This has been this has been fun. This has been a good tour of the art world from a colorful discussion. discussion. I think that we've shaped some ideas. (laughs) And with that, dear listeners, we will call it a night and stay safe out there. Hi you, thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on July 22nd, which is actually my 20th wedding anniversary. We will not be talking about weddings, but instead talking about architecture and cities and diving in deep on how to make the cities in your world more real and vibrant. We hope you liked this episode. If you did, please take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other friends of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.